We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense Fidelium coming at you with Charles Coulomb again. Sorry for the delay for last week, but he's back and we're I going am. south of the border. You bet. Down Mexico way. The mission bells told me that I must not stay south of the border. Down Mexico way. People love our playlist, by the way, so we're just adding to it. Well, good. <laughs> good. It's all seriously. Charles posted a thing about the Mexican Revolution the other day, and it piqued my interest. So I asked him, why not do a show on the Mexican Revolution and the San Patricios that many might not know who they are? So, Charles, why did you even post that about the Mexican Revolution? Well, it wasn't the Mexican Revolution. It was the Mexican-American War. Ah. Uh, because it was the anniversary of its declaration. And I made the assertion that it was, uh, alongside the Spanish-American War, one of the most unjust conflicts this country ever got involved in. And I mean, it, it was it was pretty bad. But first, we have to give a little background. Of course. And the biggest thing people are not really aware of is the fact that uh, the the oldest city in the United States is uh, founded by the Spanish in 1565, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. Florida. Long before 1607, when the first English came to Jamestown, long before them latecomers came waddling up on shore at Plymouth Rock, although not too far later, 1608, the first French Canadians would settle in Quebec City. Mm -hmm. Well, a bit later on, about 20 years later, I think, I could be off. Another set of Spanish came up from Mexico and settled uh, Santa Fe and the area around uh, north, what's now northern New Mexico. And those are the first Spanish settlements. Now, both of them came from New Spain, which was Mexico, Central America, and the Spanish West Indies, Cuba, Santo Domingo, and uh, Puerto Rico. Now, uh, what we forget, because we're used to studying about the 13 colonies and all that, is just how well run and how well off uh, Spanish America was. If you figure 
the area from northern Mexico, southern Arizona, down to Argentina, was run by the Spanish for over 250 years with a minimum of military might, no central administration to speak of. It, in terms of administration, it was an amazing feat that they were able to do that. But they did. Uh, and they did so primarily with uh, local talent, as it were. The vast majority, not all, Argentina is different, or a couple of other uh, Latin American countries, but most of the countries of Hispanic America are uh, the, the majority of the population are either of uh, pure Indian or mestizo descent, which is very different from Anglo America. As we know, the because uh, we're told in school, the Spanish were terrible to the Indians. They were just awful. Uh, and the unspoken presumption is that the Anglos were nice and wonderful. Well, where's the larger but the larger segment of the population uh, descended from the original inhabitants? I'll just let that float, float out there. <laughs> now, unfortunately, all good things come to an end. And in the case of Spanish America, uh, the result was sort of multifaceted. The reason it was multifaceted. Uh, the um, no, the uh, thing to bear in mind is that the Spanish Empire was at its greatest extent under King Carlos III, who reigned from 1764 to 1788, and whose uh, collaboration with Louis XVI in the War of the Revolution was key to American independence. He also, incidentally, was a major financier of the first uh, legal Catholic church in New York, uh, Old St. Peter's, where uh, Mother Seton would be received into the church. He did that after the war. Anyway, uh, he was a great man in many ways, not so great in others. He founded Los Angeles, so you know he was you know, just beyond wonderful. Uh, he funded Father Sarah, founded California, because he was afraid the Russians in Alaska would come down and nick it. Uh, so you've heard of the 21 missions, El Camino Real, and all that stuff. You can thank Carlos III for that, which is why he has statues, not one, not two, but three California cities, uh, being Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, and San Francisco. Of course, every now and then people whine, as people do, about colonialism and all that kind of thing. Uh, let me just say this about that. If you don't like colonialism and you think it's awful and a terrible injustice, the two things you can do, uh, both of which would require effort. And that, that should be enough to shut down anybody. You know, it would require effort to back up what you're saying. I know, I know. But let's pretend for a second that what one is saying is so important that he's actually willing to, to back up his mouth with real action. All right. The first possibility is to fight it here on the ground. What does that mean? No more colonial language. You'll stop speaking English, French, Spanish, Dutch, or any of those other languages. You'll stop using European technology, wearing European clothes, eating European food, or for that matter, using European medicine. So basically, sit in the mud in your breech clout, and if you get sick, go talk to a shaman. Now, it may be that you're not willing to do that. All right, I have a second way out for you. Go home. 
pick your carcass up and take yourself back to whatever part of Europe will have you and leave the continent to its original uh, inhabitants. Now, you might be like me. I'm part Indian, so I would have trouble. You wouldn't know what to look at me, but it's true. <laughs> so Why did Pocahontas, and now I'm not talking about the real Pocahontas, jump in my head? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, Elizabeth Warner. Yeah, Pocahontas. She... <laughs> yeah, my, my Indian maiden. I'll tell you what, she and I could have smacked around some tom-toms together. Anyway, uh, where are we going with this? Well, Amongst the other things you should bear in mind is that the first university in Mexico City, which is still there in a different location, was founded in the 1530s. Same for Lima, Peru, mm -hmm. right around the same time. Uh, and most of the major universities, the old universities in Latin America, come from the colonial era. There are a lot of writers, a lot of, uh, a lot of the things that make life worth living. When Carlos III died, however, in 1788, Spain, like the rest of the world, was on the verge of the French Revolution. And in the course of it, Spain got invaded by the infamous Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. He forced both uh, King Carlos IV, the son of Carlos III, and his son, Fernando VII, to abdicate. And he put his brother on the throne of Spain, Joseph Bonaparte. Keep it in the family. That, as one does... But then, just to add insult to injury, sort of like the Kennedys in a way. But then, resistance started, and the Cortes in the south of Spain swore allegiance to the imprisoned Fernando VII. All right, well, this put the colonies in the Americas in a very bad way. Who is the rightful king? Where do we get our viceroy from? Who do we obey? And that began the destabilization, which led eventually to the wars of independence. Mm -hmm. Now, why am I bringing all this up? Well, the reason is that uh, what we forget is that not unlike with our loyalists in, in our first civil war, the so-called American Revolution, uh, most of the royalist troops in, uh, in the Americas were native-born. And a lot of them were Indian. The re part of the reason for that is that, as with our revolution, the people who brought you the revolutions of the different countries in Spanish America were primarily very wealthy people who were already at the apex of society and wanted to take over full control. Mm -hmm. The uh, That was the case in most of them. But in Mexico, it was very strange and very different. The problem in Mexico was that, the problem would be, is that the independence movement was actually completely defeated. And then, uh, in 1820, uh, Spain, which had, been, had Fernando VII, was restored five years earlier, Spain had a liberal revolution. They put through a liberal constitution and insisted that the Spanish colonies accept it. Well, the head of the Spanish army in Mexico, Agustin de Atomida, said, no, I don't think we're going to do that. And he joined forces with what was left of the independence rebels. And they came up with what was called the Plan of Iguala. That Mexico would A, be independent of Spain, B, it would be Catholic, and C, it would be a monarchy. So 
uh, Intramino set to work trying to find a European prince who would take over the throne of Mexico. Nobody was interested. So he finally did the job himself, and he became Augustine I, the uh, emperor of Mexico. And at that time, Mexico included everything from California and Utah, although California was very thinly settled and Utah had nobody, all the way down to uh, the southern border of Costa Rica. Well, Intervita gets overthrown a couple of years later, and then he tries to get back, he gets executed. Central America secedes from Mexico. All right, now at this point, a pattern is established which in different ways has lasted throughout Latin American history, Spanish American history, to the present day. And that was that the people in charge of independence split into two factions, conservative and liberal. But what did those names mean? Well, basically, the conservatives were very much in favor of keeping the church paramount in life, in everyday life. Uh, they were... They looked to Europe for inspiration. And they tended to be very agriculturally based and so forth. Uh, the liberals, on the other hand, they tended to be anti-clerical. They looked to the United States for inspiration. And they tended to be merchants and people like that. So these were roughly the... Now, the mind you, there were differences all along the way, depending on the country. But that's good enough to be going out with. So... This conservative-liberal split has gone throughout Hispanic American history down to the present. Well, now, the United States, on the other hand, had expanded. You may remember in 1803, we bought Louisiana. Well, that brought us head-to-toe with the Spanish in Texas and in Florida. Now, we were already bordering them in East Florida, but now we had New Orleans, and so what we had in Florida towns like Baton Rouge, Mobile, Biloxi, those areas began to look very tasty. And the Americans came up with all sorts of reasons why actually they were American. I know you wouldn't have gotten that from the treaty, but if you sort of looked at it funny and you uh, borrowed Joseph Smith's magic spectacles, you could look at the treaty and see where we had a clear right to West Florida. And not just West Florida, but half of Texas. I think there's a lot of treaties that have lemon juice magic and you can just pop up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It really is. So bit by bit, we nibbled away at Florida. So first we got what are called the, the Florida parishes mm -hmm. of Louisiana, which is Baton Rouge and all that. Uh, then we nicked uh, Biloxi and Mobile so that Spanish Florida had the border, the state border it has now. Uh, during the War of 1812, President Jackson, or General that? Jackson, uh, War of 1812, uh, 1850. <laughs> Why? Anyway. Uh, a friend was asking. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it's who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> Schwartz. Anyway. What should happen but that uh, Jackson invaded uh, invaded uh, Florida and the Spanish really weren't in a position to resist him, so there you were. Finally, 1819, we signed a treaty with Spain by which we get Florida, 
in return for surrendering all claim to Texas. Okay. That frontier becomes the border between the United States and in 1821, independent Mexico. Viva, viva! But the thing about Mexico was that while it was more thickly settled in the south, her northernmost areas, southern Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and of course, Alta California, were very thinly settled. There were hostile tribes constantly pushing at the Mexican places of settlement, and they needed more people. Well, if they'd been a little smarter, they would have looked to what happened to Florida. But they didn't. So they made a deal that any Americans who wanted to come to Mexico to settle, specifically to Texas or places like that, could settle. They could settle down. That'd be fine. But they had to swear allegiance to the Mexican government. And they had to become Catholic if they weren't already. That was required. Well, there was a Father Muldoon who was a, uh, a Mick. And Father Muldoon uh, did not mind going to newly arrived American settlers and giving them fraudulent baptismal certificates so they could keep their land. And this was very, very widespread. So they called people who followed this Muldoon Catholics. So, uh, I dare say that their oath of allegiance to, the, to Mexico was about as honest as was their baptism. <laughs> now, why do I mention this? Well, because the area that got most thickly settled with American settlers first was the eastern part of what is now Texas. And a big part of Texan mythology is the Texas Revolution of 1836. Mm -hmm. Now, let me say that I do believe in every side honoring their own heroes. I really do. Uh, every conflict has two sides, two separate stories. Very often, if you read them both, you'll think you're, talking, you're, you're dealing with two totally different conflicts. Mm -hmm. But part of... Uh, not just, uh, not just honest history, but also statecraft, is accepting the fact that the two sides have their heroes, have their villains, and you have to accept that if you ever want them to live in peace together. Having said that, let's be honest. We Americans do not appreciate uh, foreigners coming in falsely swearing the oath of allegiance if they intended to do so for the purpose of taking over a section of the United States we would be very upset and whoever was sitting in the temple of truth in Washington the White House uh, would really be upset and it wouldn't matter if he was a Democrat or a Republican if he was good or he was bad mm -hmm. whatever he was there simply is no way he could tolerate uh, people working to detach say part of Idaho just couldn't do it so that was the position the Mexicans were in now it is true that they shot their prisoners at Goliath the famous Goliath massacre 
But, you know, there's something you got to bear in mind. Those guys had sworn allegiance to Mexico that were actively trying to rebel. Mm -hmm. What has happened in most of history to most people who did things like that? Called treason. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, we would later fight a war to prevent part of uh, the United States from seceding. Mm -hmm. So the question you have to ask yourself, uh, uh, was this right or wrong, uh, is amenable of two different answers. One is, well, if it was wrong for us, it's wrong for them. If it was right for us, it's right for them. That's one way you can answer it. Another way you can answer it is that it's always right for us and it's wrong for anyone else. You can say that if you want. Some people do. They generally don't say it quite so baldly. You know, uh, it's like when, when uh, Mr. Bush was talking about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And we're sure we're there, and so we've got to go in and get them. Uh, I have to admit, my reaction was we definitely owe a... Uh, uh, old Japanese an apology for our overreaction to Pearl Harbor. <laughs> just... They were just going in to get rid of the uh, weapons of mass destruction. Well, they didn't tell us about it. Well, no. Usually when you're doing a preemptive strike, you don't notify the people you're preemptively striking. You tweet it out and tag them and hashtag and all that? <laughs> no. So the question is, if it was wrong for the Japanese to do it, it should be wrong for us to do it. Contrary-wise, it was right for us to do it. Then you have to accept the Japs. Or you could say it was right for us but wrong for the Japs because we're us and they're them. Mm -hmm. Again, you could say that, ladies and gentlemen, and no one will ever accuse you of being consistent. And we always hear the phrase, a foolish consistency is the bugbear of little minds. So it may prove that you're brilliant after all. You never know. Anyway. So, the Texas Revolution uh, ended with the defeat of the Texans, uh, the Mexicans, rather, at the Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, it featured, of course, the great fight with the Alamo, which uh, everyone who's seen the John Wayne and Bill Holden film will be very excited about, mm -hmm. especially if you've got a Marx playset, you know, of the Alamo. Mm -hmm. Then you'd really be excited. Um uh, and, you know, again, I, I do not begrudge the Daughters of Texas Independence uh, for treating the Alamo as a sacred shrine to their cause. Not in the least. Uh, Speaking of that, do you know they're thinking about moving that thing? Stop. No, there, there, there's, I, I can't remember the reason what was going on. They're wanting to put a bar next across the street or something like that. And as you said, they were they considered sacred ground. There's a movement that think if they don't shut the bar down, they're going to literally move the Alamo to another location. How you put that? Will you put that on a black of a flatbed or what? Uh, I, I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, the Vegar Hotel is right down there. They have a bar that's over 140, 50 years old. Yeah, I, that's just. You mentioned you the know, consistency stuff. Yeah. People are crazy. Just. Utterly crazy. And again, uh, I, but I say that I'm, I'm all for keeping the Alamo, even though I think the Mexicans were right. How about that? Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because they did die defending the Alamo. They did die very bravely and so on and so forth. 
and their descendants, and especially their beneficiaries, i.e., the people who live in the state of Texas, have a right to honor them. Uh, but of course, I also believe the defenders of the losers, the descendants of the losers, also have a right to honor their heroes. So nothing would please me more than a statue of Santa Ana in beautiful downtown San Antonio. But there's the trick. It's to add, not to take away. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't like the fact that those people have their statue here, all right, build one of your own over there. Simple. But anyway, I digress. Too well, that was 18th. What's that? People get too triggered, though, Charles. Deep. Well, oh, oh. all right, listen, I'm French Canadian. The fact that I have to speak English is a constant trigger. All right. <laughs> okay. If we want to do, if we want to do dueling victimhoods, I'll play that, but I'll win. <laughs> See how I'm forced to speak English to you people. Parlez-vous français, cher anglais? Speak French, English, dog. I caught two, caught a couple words. Well, I meant it in the nicest way possible. Of course. The uh, reminds me of a cartoon I saw, gosh, years ago, when the uh, Pécu had just taken over in Quebec, and the uh, the uh, these two Anglo's are walking past a bit of graffiti. And the one Anglo say to the other, well, of course, the situation here is extremely complex and amenable of many interpretations. And on the wall, it says, speak French, English dogs. (laughs) 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 Well, anyway, you know, but again, uh, if if, if whatever does grow up, one realizes that everybody's a victim. And they'll tell you all how they're victimized. It's just so awful. Anyway, uh, so what happens? Well, in 1845, Texas had become part of the United States. Now, when Texas became independent, uh, there was a, a creative difference with Mexico as to their western boundary. As far as Mexico was concerned, it went down to the Nueces River and then up north. As far as Texas was concerned, it went all the way down to the Rio Grande and literally chopped off half of New Mexico. (laughs) Well, when Texas entered the United States, the United States inherited Texas's claims. Mm -hmm. And so now, instead of it being Texas, this little country, the claim that its borders went all the way to the Rio Grande, it was the United States. Now, this was a house of a different color. So, uh, war was declared, and it was trumped up circumstances. Uh, the President Polk sent General Taylor south of the Nueces River the Mexicans engaged them in the Battle of Buena Vista, mm-hmm. and the war was on. Well, it was fought on the high seas, of course, 
uh, both overland and by sea, American troops came out to California. And the California, of course, those days, you know, we talked about Disney and the Alamo. Well, let's not forget Disney and Zorro. <laughs> and California was kind of a rough and ready place. We had the missions, we had two towns, and we had the ranchos. And that was it. That was California. There wasn't much there. But it was conquered. They, a group of American settlers, they had the Mexicans, I guess, hadn't learned their lesson from Texas. But a group of uh, American settlers in, in Sonoma, California, with the help of some of the local Hispanics, declared the independent, uh, the, bear, the Bear Flag Revolt in 1846, mm -hmm. California Republic, which, of course, is our state flag today. But in the South, an ape was much loyaler to the mother country. And so, as the army came toward, uh, as the American army pushed its way overland toward L.A., they were defeated by the Californios with bullows and lancers and lances at the Battle of San Pasqual. And these were, these were rancheros, you know, they weren't regular troops. But the American soldiers had never seen anything like these guys. These little bolos are the, the, the rock and rope thing. Yeah, yeah. And the lances, I mean, they had no defense against. So San Pasquale was a real mess for the Americans. Uh, nevertheless, they pushed on. And they uh, they got to L.A. Uh, they they fought a, a, a swift uh, battle at uh, Cahuenga Pass. And then signed the treaty, the Battle of Cahuenga Pass, the uh, Peace of Cahuenga Pass, marched in and took L.A. Now, Los Angeles was not the bustling place it is now. It was a sleepy little pueblo. But above it was a hill. And on that hill, the uh, American commander put cannon. And this is called Fort Moore. It's called Fort Moore Hill today. And he swore that if there was any trouble from L.A., he'd blow the city to smithereens. So there wasn't any trouble in L.A. We were good. Uh, New Mexico was also invaded the same way, coming over land. Uh, and all those were very, very exciting. But meanwhile, something else was happening. Now, in those days, the United States Army had a lot of immigrants, Catholic immigrants from Europe. But one thing they did not have for them were Catholic chaplains. They had Episcopalian chaplains, they had Presbyterian chaplains, and other, other Protestant chaplains but no Catholics. And Catholicism, anti-Catholicism was a big part of the propaganda for the war against Mexico. So, as we uh, began marching south into, into Mexico, many uh, American troops would do things like loot churches and so forth. Uh, and the Catholics among them didn't find this a particularly useful thing. So what happened was that Catholics, especially Irish, but not exclusively, began deserting to the Mexicans. And these were eventually formed into the San Patricio Battalion, St. Patrick's Battalion. Well, while the American troops were pushing southward by land, an American fleet in 1847, I think, brought a, uh, a large American army commanded by General Winfield Scott to uh, Veracruz. They seized the city and began their inward march to Mexico, Mexico City. Finally, and of course, their, their, uh, their uh, 
you might say the advance party were Marines. And this became very important later for Marine mythology because they arrived and they they arrived and seized the city. They fought a pitch battle. Uh, this is where the Marines start talking about the halls of Montezuma. Mm-hmm. And A couple of things happened. The San Patricios, who were considered traitors by the Americans, were fought very, very hard, very heroically. A number of them who were captured were hung. Not all of them were. A group of cadets at the castle of Chapultepec, outside the city, refused to give in and jumped to their deaths instead. Hmm. Now they're uh, commemorated as heroes in Mexico to this day. So, Mexico surrendered. And what it surrendered in return for cash consideration was California, most of what is now Arizona, uh, most of New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and everything that Texas had claimed. Uh, They would later add a little bit more, including what are now Tucson and uh, uh, Las Cruces, Mexico, Tucson, Arizona, Las Cruces, Mexico, in 1853, I think, it was called the Gadsden Purchase. Mm-hmm. And that, since then, our border with Mexico has been more or less the same. And that was the Mexican War. Uh, but we weren't done with Mexico. Now, in the 1820s, we had sent an ambassador down there by the name of Joel Poinson. Now, Mr. Poinson did two things that made him very famous. He discovered this red-leaved plant tiny, 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 tiny uh, blossoms, but big red leaves. And he brought them home, and they've been called poinsettias in his honor ever since. So every Christmas, we can all get kind of Mexican, you know, eat our tamales and gawk in our poinsettias. But he did something else that wasn't nearly as nice. He introduced Freemasonry into Mexico. And the two factions of the Freemasons, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, became virtually political factions in Mexico. And their, their fighting contributed to the ongoing destabilization. Now, you remember I told you about the conservatives and the liberals? Mm-hmm. Well, along around 1853, the, uh, in, in the wake of uh, Santa Ana's overthrow and so on, these two sides really coalesced against each other. And the leader of the conservatives was a man named Minamon. The leader of the liberals was a man named Benito Juarez. The United States armed and supplied Juarez to the teeth. And so not surprisingly, the conservatives were defeated in what was called the War of the Reform. So Juarez... Now that he was undisputed master of Mexico, put in all sorts of anti-clerical laws, stole a great deal of church property, and so forth. But he had one other bright idea. The Mexicans, especially because of Santa Ana's misadventures, owed a lot of money to Britain, France, and Spain. He came up with the bright idea of saving money by not paying them anything. Well... It is true, you know, if you look at all your bills, right, and you stop paying them, think of how much money you would save. 
You would, wouldn't you? Yes. Of course you would. Now, unfortunately, there might be certain drawbacks to that strategy. Other people might want it. Uh, yeah, you, you, you might you might find your credit cards gone. You might find your car repossessed. You might find your lights going out and your water not working. You're sick. But you would have a lot of money. Now, the same thing happened with Juarez. And the debt collectors came up with a brilliant idea. Remember Veracruz, when Winfield Scott and his men came in? Well, that was Mexico's biggest port. And most of the government's money came from the tariffs collected at the port of Veracruz. So the French, British, and Spanish came up with a bright idea. We'll seize Veracruz, run the customs outfit ourselves, and pay ourselves back. And that's what they did. Well, this gave Juarez a problem because now he didn't have an income, which was sort of tough. But at the same time, the conservatives had not given up. And all the while that they had been out of power, they had thought, you know, remember that first emperor they had, Augustine I, the Jamina? What we need is to have us an emperor from a uh, European house. The man... Ay caramba. Ay caramba, indeed. The man... Well, see, they needed someone who would be a focus of Mexican independence uh, vis-a-vis the neighbor to the north. And they decided upon a man called Maximilian, who was the younger brother of the Emperor of Austria that had a lot of administrative uh, experience and military as well, naval. So they started. They actually started asking him in the 18, or late 1850s, and he kept saying no. But then Napoleon III had a bright idea of trying to make Mexico something of a client state. So from Veracruz, he led his troops in inland, seized Mexico City and so on. Well, the British and the French decided, you know, this is really isn't what we signed up for. So have a, have a nice day. And they left. But the French continued and conquered most of Mexico. And at this point, when the conservatives came around with French backing, Maximilian said yes. And he and his wife, Colota, came to Mexico. Well, all of this was possible because the United States were busy uh, fighting these evil people who had tried to take away part of the United States. Oh. No, see, see, the Texas Revolution, <laughs> the Texas Revolution was good, but the Confederate Revolution was bad. Mm-hmm. Or wait a minute. The American Revolution was good. <laughs> but the... I still get called traitor to this day on that one. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I can do this. Just give me a sec. I can do this. I can do this. All right. It was bad for the Confederates to try to secede from the Union. The way it was for the founding fathers to try to secede from the British Okay, this isn't going the way it's supposed to go. <laughs> Actually, all joking aside, famous story, and I love quoting it, of a, a comedian who was a good friend of President Lincoln's. And in 1861, when the states started pulling out, uh, Lincoln asked him, well, what do you think? And he said, well, sir, 
if, uh, if secession is a valid concept, then of course my sympathy has to be with the South. But if not, all I can say is God save the king. <laughs> so at any rate, without wanting to go too much further into that, that conflict is what allowed the French to deal with Mexico without any interference from the United States. Mm -hmm. So Juarez soon found himself ruler of the very far south and the very far north. You know El Paso, Texas? Mm -hmm. Well, the city to its south was founded as El Paso. Hmm. Just like Nogales is on both sides, El Paso was on both sides. Hmm. But Juarez sought that far northern spot as his last refuge. And afterwards, it was renamed Ciudad Juarez in his, uh, in his honor. Well, 1865 comes along. Lee surrenders at Appomattox, but the Confederate States of America was not the only victim of that victory. So too was the Second Mexican Empire, because now the United States were reunited and in a position to tell the French to pull out or we would declare war. Mm -hmm. So Napoleon III pulled out, urging Maximilian to do the same. Maximilian refused to. He said, I have sworn my life to the people of Mexico. And for them, I will die. Well, he did. Eventually, he was captured. But here's the fun part. With him were captured two generals, Miramon, who you remember around the conservatives once upon a time, mm -hmm. and uh, Mejia. Was it Mejia or Marquez? Mejia, I think. Um, and those two generals were given the chance to save their lives they would forswear their uh, allegiance to Emperor Maximilian. They refused. And they were executed with it. Which shows you the kind of loyalty that Maximilian was able to create in the people who actually knew him. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Mexico was now once again under a regime beholden to the United States for its existence. Well, an hour in the 1870s. In 1876, Juarez was overthrown by his lieutenant, a man named Porfirio Diaz. Porfirio kind of loosened up a little bit on the, on the anti-clerical laws without getting them off the books. This is very common in Mexican history because mm -hmm. you've always got the whip hand if you need it. Yeah. Uh, and he, he inv invited in all kinds of foreign investment, railroads, mines, everything. If you had the money, he had the time. So there lay poor little Mexico so far from God and so close to the United States. Mm -hmm. Now, as it so happened, the revolutions of uh, the, the Hispanic American countries had left Spain with several major colonies intact. Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Pacific Islands like Guam, and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. That's what the Spanish Empire had fallen down to. Well, they had successive rebellions in these places, which the Spanish put down with more or less effectiveness. But then the Americans began to look very carefully at Cuba and at Puerto Rico, began to think, those might be nice additions. And then 
there was a there were revolutions against the Spanish, the latest ones in Cuba and the Philippines, and they got a very big hearing in Washington. And a large portion of the government was keen on getting into the war. Now, mind you, this was the time when we were taking over American Samoa, we took over Hawaii, through. I mean, if you study the way in which these things were done, they were not very, shall we say, ethical. Uh, Hawaii featured a lot of settled Americans settled there. Uh, initially, they came as missionaries, Congregationalist missionaries from Massachusetts. Uh, then they bought a lot of property and so forth and became uh, very wealthy. And then they overthrew the, uh, the uh, queen and declared the Republic of Hawaii and immediately asked to be uh, brought into the United States. President Cleveland examined what had, what had happened and said, no, no way, forget it, it's not happening. But that's where things stood in 1898. So as we know, in 1898, uh, we ratcheted up the tension with Spain over Cuba. And an American ship, the USS Maine, exploded in uh, Havana Harbor. We know now that it was an accident. The Spanish said, to the best of their knowledge, it was an accident. We insisted that the Spanish had done it, and so we declared war. And we seized Cuba and Puerto Rico and the Philippines and Guam uh, and annexed them. Now, Cuba was a bit of a problem because we'd gone to war, supposedly, for Cuban independence. So... Before it was over, Congress passed what was called the Teller Amendment, meaning we had to give Cuba independence. But we held on to everything else. And the following year, we, uh, we took Hawaii after all. So there we were with literally an empire spanning the globe. Uh, but our invasion of the Spanish Empire was as unjust as our invasion of Mexico. At both times, we drummed up what was called the Black Legend, you know, how the Spanish have always been terrible and evil and nasty and, mm -hmm. and Catholic. Um, I remember Colonel McIntyre, who was my confessor when I was uh, a boy in high school, he uh, had been 12 years old when the Declaration of War against Spain took place. And the priest preached it from the pulpit as a holy crusade. And even at 12 years old, young James McIntyre thought that that was a little much of a stretch, <laughs> considering that they were Catholic and we were going to fight for a bunch of Protestant Freemasons. Well, many years later, uh, Francisco Franco gave Colonel McIntyre the uh, order, I think, of Isabella the Catholic. And it was Carlos III, one or the other, but whichever it was. So he gave it to him. And his evidence said to me, I just wish that priest of my childhood had been alive so I could have invited him to the ceremony. So he could have seen it. Now, uh, where all of this continued to be kind of an ongoing feature in American history is that, of course, after the Spanish-American War, we began intervening in the affairs of the different Latin American republics. Cuba, repeatedly, uh, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Nicaragua. Uh, we very famously, when the, when the Colombians refused to give us the Panama Canal, 
we uh, managed to assist a Panamanian revolution. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there was a Panama out of which we got the canal. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were not, these were not our, our most shining hours. You know, I'm, I'm very fond of Teddy Roosevelt. I really am. But the Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine is kind of a, a tough thing to a tough thing to uh, to take. Uh, our intervention of Morocco in 1904 was really, really kind of wild, and it came in the midst of nothing. I mean, there at least we had no we had no no real stake. Now, here was a situation where you had the French, the Spanish, the British, and the Germans ready to go to war with each other over their spheres of influence in this quasi-independent country. Uh, an American, uh, by the name, former consul in Tangier, is kidnapped by a Berber chieftain who's at war with the Sultan uh, in Petacaris, was the fellow's name. Well, Roosevelt declared... Petacaris alive or Rizuli dead? Rizuli being the uh, being the uh, uh, chieftain. Well, the Moroccan officials wouldn't do anything, so we sent our fleet to Tangier and took the Bashaw of Tangier prisoner and declared that unless we got our man back, they were going to get the Bashaw. Now, mind you, this was uh, amazing, but the Moroccans came up with the dough. And they they ransom Petacaris back. Uh, we give the Bashaw back, and we sail off into the into the distance. Petacaris, uh, you know, he, Roosevelt made a big deal about we will not have an American citizen uh, menaced by foreign brigands. Blah blah blah. Right. So he gets Petacaris back to Washington, and you know he's very grateful, of course, to be there. Although he got on very well with the Rizuli, he played chess with them and all that. You know, enjoyed his company. But he, he said, you know, this is a wonderful thing to do for someone who wasn't even an American citizen. And Roosevelt was like, what? <laughs> well, no, I, I was your consul general, but as honorary consul, I'm a Greek. Something you just can't make up. This was not very well publicized. <laughs> So you didn't see the next day in the uh, you know in the Washington uh, in the Washington Herald, uh, President Roosevelt. Oops, <laughs> no, no. There's a very fine movie that dramatizes the thing. It takes a lot of liberties with the truth, but it's it's uh, still a great picture. That it will make your heart swell with pride to see the American Marines go into Tangier. When the, the Germans and the French and the English are like, what are they doing? Don't they know what? I mean, this place is a powder keg. You could set the world at war at any moment. And here come the Americans. You know, it is, there's a very funny scene. I don't know if it's anything true to life or anything like that, but in the American consulate, the commander of the Marines and the, and the U.S. Naval Squadron are talking with the consul general, and they explain what they plan to do. says, but Gentlemen, you know, this place, this, this place is a tinderbox. You could set off a world war. And the admiral and the uh, the uh, marine captain lift their glasses to a world at war. <laughs> Make mine a double. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll triple, thanks. Uh, the the uh, 
in the scene where they're uh, where they're going after the palace. You know, the, the Marines are double time, and they double time past the uh, the consulate general, the American consulate general, which, by the way, is the oldest one in the world, hmm. because the uh, Sultan of Morocco recognized the independence of the United States, I think, before anybody else did. So they're running past. And you see the, the consul has the flag out and he's waving and he's got a pistol behind his back. You know, and he's all smiles. <laughs> what movie is this? It's called The Wind of the Lion. It came out in 1975. And what was ironic about it when it came out was that uh, they had just seized the Mayaguez, which was an American ship the Cambodians seized just after the fall of uh, Cambodia to the Reds. And American weakness in the face of the fall of Vietnam. I mean, the only way the treaty could be maintained is if the United States were willing to go back in. Mm-hmm. We manifestly were not, and so they happily violated it and gobbled up not just South Vietnam, but Cambodia and Laos, you know, while we sat on our hands. Well, uh, to have that film come out at that time was almost painful, you know, because here you see the Americans in 1905, uh, you know, not, not caring, just you know, breaking up the furniture and knocking things down. So what? Your problem, not mine. And there we are 70 years later, just, oh, I don't know. Fortunately, it's all better now. But at any rate, well, under lockdown, it's easy to be brave. At any rate, oh, don't start. Don't you start. You heard that? <laughs> I, I I am shot. I thought you were more of an American than that. Anyway, <laughs> so the long and the short of all this good stuff is that the, uh, the uh, same sort of Malaise, if you will, has plagued our relationship with Latin America ever since. Interestingly, the Roosevelt Corollary was replaced by his cousin, Franklin, cousin and, something, or cousin and nephew-in-law, Franklin Roosevelt, what was called the good neighbor policy, which meant basically we're not going to invade you whenever we feel like it, which I'm sure the, our Latin American friends thought was a nice thing. Uh, this was the beginning of the, uh, the Organization of American States and so on. But at the, uh, at the same time, something happened in Roosevelt, uh, Frank, Franklin Roosevelt's reign to rekindle all of our innate anti-Spanishness. And that was the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Franco versus the communists. Mm-hmm. Now, setting what was really going on there aside, uh, the effect it had in the United States is that by and large, most Catholics were pro... Well, you know what? I've, I've neglected to mention the Crucero War at all, and I really have to touch on that. That was in the 1920s under President Coolidge. There, uh, you had a Catholic revolt against an anti-clerical government. Uh, and that, that, too, the way that all that worked out was strange. I mentioned Porfirio Diaz. Well, he ruled Mexico from 1876 to 1910. He was overthrown in a revolution, by, and his replacement was a man called uh, Francisco Madero. Uh, Madero was president for a few years. He was not extremely uh, effective. So he was overthrown 
by a man called Victoriano Huerta. Now, Huerta was a quasi-semi, sort of kind of conservative, sort of kind of pro-Catholic. But he was loathed by our then-President Woodrow Wilson, who refused to recognize the New Mexican government. He really liked Madero and did not like Huerta. Well, he finally fell back on an old standby. You could destabilize the Mexican government if you cut off their money. So it so happened that an American sailor had gotten drunk one night in Veracruz and, you know, broken up the furniture, beaten some people up and so forth. So he got thrown in jail. Woodrow Wilson saw this was obviously an imposition up with which the United States could not put. And he sent the fleet. And we seized Veracruz. And held it long enough to force Winter's government to collapse. And then we withdrew. This is commemorated in a song by the late Warren Zevon, who you remember from Werewolves of London, mm-hmm. uh, called, just in case you forget, Veracruz. Wonderful song. It's got a, a really Mexican-esque instrumental interlude in the middle of it. I heard Woodrow Wilson's guns. It? What's that? Heard Woodrow guns. That's it. I heard Maria Late last night that is most definitely it. It's not going to be in the top 50 of uh, Casey Kasem's, but there you go, folks. <laughs> it's, it's a great song. I've always enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So... Of course, I'm not really what you would call a Woodrow Wilson fan. Yeah, At any rate, actually, one what's of my that? Better, neither am I. One of my better best better friends about ten years ago. He was related to him. <laughs> really? Well, you can't help your relatives. Yeah, you know, you can sure. pick your friends, can't pick your relatives. But uh, so Mexico really collapsed into uh, into utter civil war at that point. And people like uh, became uh, famous like Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, and so forth. Villa, in 1916, staged a raid on the uh, American town of uh, Davis, New Mexico, I think. And uh, we sent an expedition down to get him, to get Pancho Villa. It didn't succeed. But you know what it did do? It gave a number of cadets from my alma mater, New Mexico Military Institute, their first taste of military service. And the man who commanded the expedition to Mexico would later find a great deal of fame in another of Mr. Pershing's, uh, Mr. Wilson's wars, General John J. Pershing, Blackjack. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't catch me, so they had to turn around and come home. Uh, and that was the year, of course, that he, uh, that Wilson fought and won a campaign, a presidential campaign on the motto, he kept us out of war. <laughs> and my, uh, my little joke about that is, uh, at least that he kept it that could fight back. Yes. <laughs> but wouldn't it be, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to know and to realize though, that not only did he, uh, invade, uh, Mexico, and help ensure that Mexico would stay destabilized. Uh, it it took a good four or five years for order to to 
emerged from that mess. And that was about 1920. The new government was uh, formed by a party called the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, very anti-clerical. They began uh, smacking the church around. A lot of the church landing didn't care for it, and the result was the Great Cristero War. Today, May 21st, is the feast of the martyrs of the Cristero War, about 25 people murdered by the pre. Now, what made the Cristero War so interesting is that the pre had a great deal of monetary and military support from the United States government. Silent cow. Should have stayed so in this case, but yes, uh, as as, as for someone who didn't want a telephone in the White House, he had no problem sending military. <laughs> no, he, he was. At any rate, that's another another really disgraceful uh, thing. In the end, the Cristeros, despite our best efforts, were winning. Mm-hmm. So, the Mexican government appealed to Pius XI and declared that he, if he would call his dogs off. Uh, the Mexican government would play nice. Pius XI had them stand down. A lot of them got slaughtered as a result, and the Mexican government did not play nice. But that was the end of the Cristero War. So now fast forward to the Spanish Civil War, about 10 years. Uh, That was a period when in Spain and as in Latin America, you had this this uh, what's the word I want Uh, when two sides are uh, polarization that's what I want boy you had a a tremendous polarization between right and left Uh, the right of course being Catholic the left being anti-Catholic and various other issues involved as well and this went throughout Latin America as well as Spain and this had several results number one uh Catholics in America generally supported Franco. A lot of Protestants did not, and a lot of American communists went over to fight for Franco. Mm -hmm. They formed the Abraham Lincoln and George Washington brigades. Hmm. So uh, Franco won that war with the help of uh, a lot of conservative volunteers, but also the... uh, Germans, Italians, and Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So, but they had Irish volunteers, French volunteers, Russians, Bulgarians, Americans even fought for Franco. You don't hear about them, but they did. So Franco wins, and he becomes sort of a, a leading light to light-minded people throughout Latin America. Now, why is this important, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Because due to its history, Spanish America, Latin America, has a certain font of anti-Americanism, anti-United States of Americanism, that's just waiting there at any given moment to be invoked. And it can be invoked by anybody for any reason. You know, we need to plant more daisies, unlike those stinking Yankees. But you see, that, that hatred didn't pop out of nowhere. It had a reason. So, I've left out things like uh, William Walker in Nicaragua in the 1850s and things like that. But suffice to say that our dealings with our southern neighbors have not always been wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, it so happened that a group arose in Mexico, which was still very much under the thumb of the pre, called the Sinarquistas. Now, Sinarquista is the opposite of Anarquista. Anarchista means without government. Sinarquista means with government. But they very much emphasize the idea of uh, Mexico as a Catholic country, the Spanish heritage of Mexico, as opposed to the Indianismo that was pushed by the pre. And they looked to Italy, Germany, and particularly Franco and Spain as inspirations. And like Franco and like a lot of other groups throughout the Spanish world, they were very much believers in Hispanidad, the reunion of the Spanish-speaking world. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the Sinarquistas uh, spread throughout Mexico, but they also spread through the American Southwest. And in Los Angeles, California, there were a large number of them, the leader of whom was an interesting fellow whom I could have met but never did because I didn't know he existed at the time. But I mean, in terms of time period, I could have met the man. I wish I had. His name was Pedro Villaseñor. The wish that I could have known him. I would have loved to have picked his brain. And, you know. But it didn't happen that way. So he died without ever knowing me. Uh, what happens? Well, things come to a head in 1942 in Los Angeles, when we have a lot of servicemen for World War II. And these are the famous Zoot Suit Riots. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're interesting because the Sinarchistas played a certain part in them. And this, in fact, was uh, uh, memorialized by, uh, oh gosh, the author of L.A. Confidential. What is his name? I've met the man. I can't think of his name. But he wrote a book called The Black Dahlia about the, the murder mystery. But the beginning of it deals with the Zoot Suit Riots. And he mentions the Sinarchistas. So there you go. Anyway, uh, that all that uh, basically was ended in World War II. But, and the other thing you should remember too, is that in California and a lot of the borderlands, the Anglos were very much the majority at the end of World War II. But we were short of workers under Eisenhower. We had a lot more brought in, the Bracero program. And eventually, the trickle became a torrent. At the same time, uh, there was a lot of resentment toward the way that history had worked out between the Anglo and the Hispanic. A lot of resentment. While at the same time, amongst the Hispanics in America, the forces of assimilation were constantly at work. Where am I going with all this? Well, I'm going to where we are now. Because in the 60s, a sort of strange ideology was invented, primarily by Anglo university professors, to... Uh, that managed to be anti-American, anti-Spanish, anti-Catholic, all at once. It was the best of all worlds. And it was entirely artificial. The notion was the creation of a, uh, a new country to be called Aztlan, after the original homeland of the Aztecs, with whom most Mexicans have nothing in common. But never mind. 
uh, I remember meeting, I won't mention his name, but I remember meeting one of the foremost uh, proponents of this idea because he was one of my teachers at Cal State Northridge. And I soon realized he didn't speak Spanish. He was that assimilated. And, okay. Uh, At the same time, however, the Catholic Church was going through its implosion. Uh, It was saying that in political terms, the Church claims no, no special rights. It just wants to form more just societies with other people of faith or none of goodwill, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, and again, I don't want to argue the the, the theory behind it, but I'll, what I'm happy to assert is what actually happened. And that is, rightly or wrongly, the impression for the vast majority of Catholics in any position was that rather than having an independent political voice, political force, from now on, the church and so her, her members were just along for the ride. As an independent force, we would be henceforth completely irrelevant. And so... Non-essential. Exactly. And so, what that had to do with our immediate course was that it created this... It contributed to the creation of this weird uh, ideology. You see, prior anti-Americanism amongst Latin Americans was to a great degree rooted in the anti-Catholicism of the United States. Mm -hmm. But things became very blurred because not only did everything I've said occur, but at the same time, starting in the late 60s, early 70s, you had a heavy penetration of Latin America and of Hispanic immigrants to the United States by Protestants, heavily funded by Anglo-American sources. So now you you I mean some have gone on to describe what's happening in Latin America now as a second reformation. And what is the church's response been? I don't have the cricket uh soundtrack anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Similarly, the uh you know when you ask people down there why they've got into Pentecostalism or whatever, well they're they're uh, priests talk about Jesus. Remember, this was also the golden age of liberation theology mm-hmm. in South America and Central America. So the Pentecostals talk about Jesus. And then you had the interesting thing in countries like Guatemala and Nicaragua of the quote-unquote conservatives turning Protestant because the Protestant evangelicals were aiming them toward Reagan's America whereas the uh, liberation theology pushing Catholic clergy were pro-Soviet, pro-Cuban. I don't think anybody wants to tackle this, do they? I don't think anybody wants to look at this entire broad picture, do they? Because it doesn't really make anybody look good. So, the question is, how do we get from here to someplace sane. I think in this, as in so many other cases and places, we have to go back to our first principle, the salvation of souls. The uh, church today, 
the uh, institutional church, as people like to say, is very big on pushing uh, immigration from Latin America. Well, people have also often asked my opinion on the immigration issue. And my response is, I don't really like giving one because both sides are lying. And they're lying in a sense that I think you'll understand with all of the history I've uh, burned. You know how none of it really helps? None of it will make you feel good about yourself? Which is what we all want, you know. We all want to feel good about ourselves. Well, feeling good about yourself is so much better than doing good. Because doing good requires effort. We don't like that. No. We like to spout off. I know. I speak as a major spout. Anyway. Forget that. Point is, <laughs> the pro-immigration people will often uh, hint at the idea that this might help Catholicize America. They'll say that it's a dreadful thing that anybody should be kept out of these United States and that it's a human right to simply allow anybody to pour in. Mm-hmm. What are they leaving out? Well, a lot. They're leaving out, firstly, the fact that an awful lot of these Catholic immigrants fall away from the church very quickly and are snapped up by the Protestants who, unlike us, at least pretend to care about their souls. Mm. Uh, Another problem is the effect that immigration to the United States has done to Mexican society and Mexican culture. They pick up a lot of garbage from us because, you know, our culture is garbagey, you know, if you step into a swamp and you lie down in it, you might get up kind of muddy. Well, that's what happens. Uh, they get used to all sorts of rot with us. That's why, I mean, I remember when I was a boy, these telenovelas that they, that they have on Mexican television were like Victorian morality plays. Mm-hmm. Now they're semi-port. Well, that's inspired by the great neighbor to the north. The whole gay marriage and abortion thing in Mexico. Same, 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 same. Mm-hmm. Mind you, it also doesn't help having their wealthiest people send their children to American universities to get their heads filled with garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, and absolutely ruined. So, the uh, the other thing, too, is the, the terrible effect that uh, mass immigration has had on Mexican family life. Mm-hmm. Not just on the kids who go up there to the north and get caught up in gangs and all sorts of other rot. Uh, but also the ones who stay, and there are no fathers. So that's my problem with the pro-immigrant people. Now, what about the anti-immigrant people? Oh, it's terrible. We're going to be over, you know, we're going to be overwhelmed by this tide of brown and uh, these non-English speakers and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, firstly, they're not coming up to season our jobs as bank presidents and nuclear physicists. They took our kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. Uh, Except if that's your idea of a good time. Uh, The other thing, too, is that it's cheap labor. The major corporations want them. And, of course, in America, the business of America being business, as Silent Cow tells us, uh, which... My father quoted it to me and then said, uh, that's the motto of any bordello. But 
he was he'd fought for this country in World War II, so he felt he had uh, you know street cred, being a tail gunner and all that. Whenever anyone would accuse him of saying anything remotely anti-American, his response would be, "I offered my life in the Pacific Theater, and you've done what again?" Usually, that was enough to shut them up, because people who had actually seen never couched it that way. Anyway, I digress. So, what to do with all of this? Where to come of this vast swamp of lies and stupidity? Well, in the church, anyway, we have to put the focus back where it belongs, the salvation of souls. Every major issue we have in the church is resolved, if you think about it, by putting that at the centerpiece. Uh, one of the big arguments today, as you know, in the church is between uh, in social affairs is between integralists and so-called constitutionalists or whatever, fighting over you know can the Catholic ver uh, vision of a common good be enacted in a multi-confessional country? Should we even try? Well, you can argue that both sides any way you like, but. If the majority of Americans became Catholic, the issue would vanish. Because then the common good would be obvious. There wouldn't be a problem. If the majority of Americans became Catholic, our issues with Latin America would vanish because of uh, our similar worldviews. It would be just as it's funny to see parts of the United States and Europe evangelized by Nigerian and Indian priests today. It would be just as funny to see Peru and Mexico evangelized by uh, priests from Pennsylvania and California who, don't, who, who would probably speak their Spanish about as well as the Indians and Nigerians do English. <laughs> the, it's kind of funny you say that because I actually know a priest from Pennsylvania but one from Virginia who's down in Guadalajara Preaching to yeah, Mexicans. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can just see. Uh, Como uh, esta usted, uh, mi hermanos? Uh, yo soy uh, tu uh, padre. Uh, I, 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 I can just see it. But uh, once again, is it everything else? It is the faith that brings us reconciliation. It is evangelization that spreads the faith. Everything else... is drivel. Uh, you know, if what is, is curious as to the, as to the uh, uh, reaction of the church to the current crisis, one thing you can be assured of is that the salvation of souls is not really on the menu. Otherwise, you wouldn't have uh, various clerics of various positions saying we should just be happy with spiritual communions and perfect acts of contrition. Yeah, I know one that just does a general confession, general absolution before Mass, and he hasn't opened up the confessional in weeks. Well, see, it's not important. It's not important, but you see, in that case, uh, since absolution is general, so should, uh, so should collection. One person pays on behalf of everyone else. Here's your $5 bill, Father. Happy Sunday. See you next week. 
I'm paying for everybody. I'm wearing my gloves and I've got my mask. So you're safe. <laughs> or the plastic shield. <laughs> yeah, of course, even the bill itself, you probably probably have to take a lighter to it to purify it. Don't want to be consistent now, you know. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, you know, that that was the argument the Minnesota bishops had. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're threatening to reopen. You've got a cathedral that'll hold 10,000 people in it. And you can't have anyone in it. But Walmart is crabbed. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have mass on Walmart. be perfectly fine. Well, you know, you're not the only one who said that. I've heard a lot of people. Let's just assume mass on Walmart, you know, and, and that'll be fine. Oh, gosh. Anyway. Got live plants. <laughs> yes. All true. All true. <laughs> Pretty soon we're going to be getting into Halloween decorations. That'll be a good background <laughs> for some of these, these masses anyway. But, no, I, 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 I can see, you know, uh, uh, the a, a guitar mass in front of a, a Halloween display. I think that'd be great. I'd go. You don't have to bring your instruments. They have them. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I think it'd be fun. I think it would be fun. Uh, but anyway, so let's see. What else can I tell you? I guess that's kind of, it's kind of sort of about it. Yeah, just in case anybody thinks we're just blasting the states on this, I mean, you also got to remember, oh, I come from South Carolina. I love South Carolina, but there was a general there that waged wars on the uh, the outposts or the missions in Florida, and that's where we get the Seminoles from because they killed the Catholic priests in Florida and yeah, made the Indians it, wander around. It's what we call the law of unintended consequences. Yes. The, uh, I mean, one of the things you got to bear in mind too is that, and it's a fair question. Well. If we admit that this and such was uh, uh, unjust, what are we supposed to do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is not necessarily anything, except admit it. I mean, if if my great grandfather, if I were rich and my family fortune was built on bootlegging, uh, and this was proved to me. You know, your great grandfather built the money on bootlegging, prostitution, and drugs. Uh, would I give up my money? No. Would I really think a lot harder about how much money I gave to charity and the kind of good works I did? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because at that point, I would look at my, uh, at my family fortune as something that had better be used for good. Uh, Precisely because its origins were so sleazy. And in that way, I could hope to redeem the past. You can't erase it. You shouldn't try. That's why tearing down the statues of Columbus and the Confederate monuments and so forth is such utter garbage. What you do is if you're pretty sure you, if A, you admit you were wrong, B, you try to do better now. There's no point apologizing to dead people. You can try fixing damage now. Uh, if you see the United States uh, did terrible things in its foreign policy in days gone by, you try not to do that again. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. Uh, you know, you can't you can't go back in time and uh, undo what was done to Queen Liliuokalani. 
you could not do again what we did to Zahir Shah in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You know, you 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 can learn these lessons. You say, uh, and it also means you will look at the president a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Instead of seeing the uh, our neighbors to the south as this proud horde that's going to overwhelm us because, like, they still know how to breed and we can't and stuff. Uh, which is also, on the, you know, the fertility issue is another unspoken thing that gets me crazy. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that a lot of our, a lot of our instinctive hatred of our southern neighbors comes from the fact that we're not allowed to acknowledge, which is that they they still breed to a degree and we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about the results of birth control on American, the American economy, the American political stance, let alone American culture. We can't talk about it. I mean, I don't mind talking about it, but we, we're not supposed to. It's, it's bad form. We should, and this is what I'm talking about. We are never going to get back all those babies who were murdered in the womb, but we could stop doing it. We... We cannot repair the past, but we can use it to make the present, and so please God, the future, better. Right. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that goes back to the question of once more putting at the center of our faith and so of our civic life, the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. That is the criteria, nothing else. And you see, withdrawing it from the menu, as so many of our churchmen have done, we've seen the results. Mm -hmm. This is the reductio ad absurdum of what we've been doing for a long time. But stop and think for a second. Imagine, if you will, that you're a priest. And you basically do not believe that what you do is essential for salvation. Well, that's going to change your whole, even not consciously, mm -hmm. it's going to change your whole manner of doing things. So, for instance, let's say I'm coming by at an inconvenient time. You know, you've got a golf game at 10. It's 940. You've really got to get going. And I'm just sure, and you know who I am, and you know how I go on. And you've got to get to the, go, to the, uh, the uh, golf club straight away. Mm -hmm. Well, there are two ways you can deal with it. You can say, well, if I'm nasty and cold and pushy, I might push him right out of the church. And how many people do we know who are out of the church for that very reason? Uh, or you could say, uh, God, it's him again. Well, I'll be as nice as I can and try to fob him off. Big difference. Mm -hmm. The big difference between, uh, not right now, Charles, I'm busy. Bye-bye. And, oh, geez, Charles, so good to see you. I'm sorry. I'd love to stay and talk. I really would, but. Okay, Father, you go ahead. I'll be here waiting with a long list of things to talk your ear off about when you get back. I'll get my chair. I'll be... <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure. See ya. But seriously, it affects everything. Um. Uh, so, that ultimately, what is the answer to our great Latin American dilemma? The conversion of the United States and the reconversion of Latin America. Mm 
both of which are dependent upon the faithful, that is us, once more believing in the salvation of souls. There is my Johnny One Note. Amen to that. Charles, I appreciate it. Everybody, go to Tumblr House website and their YouTube channel. So Charles and Vinny on Mondays. Yes. Submit their questions because obviously you don't get to submit them on here because we're not live and I don't ask for your questions. So you can ask him anything. Well, I think you can ask anything you want, right? Well, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, within a certain amount of reason, you ask my PIN number and I'll give you someone else's. <laughs> What's your PIN number on your uh, on your Bank of America card? You know, somebody's going to submit that question now. <laughs> I do sometimes. I, I I will get some pretty odd questions. That's that's true. Uh, but you know, the the thing is, of course, we have patrons, and their uh, their questions take precedence simply because they pay for the privilege. To be brutally frank, but we do uh, we do try to include as many unpaid questions as we can uh, per episode. It's it varies. I mean, and the and it does require a certain amount of mental gymnastics because uh, you know women will be. Uh, so, uh, what do you think about the way King Leopold II treated the Congo in the 1880s? Well, uh, I think that blah blah blah. Uh, do you think that the way that the uh, the the chalice is elevated at mass <laughs> is a, a recent phenomenon? Well. You know, my and I, my head goes back and forth like. What do you think uh, like, about that double play in the seventh inning in the Cubs NLCS series in '86? Pretty much. <laughs> uh, uh, well, uh, you know, I'm reminded a little bit. This has nothing to do with anything, but it's a funny story. You know who Irving Berlin was, uh-huh. the composer. Uh-huh. There was a fellow called Isaiah Berlin, who was renowned as a, uh, a philosopher and a thinker and so forth. So. During the war, in World War II in London, Irving Berlin came to London to uh, perform. Churchill heard about it and confused him with Isaiah Berlin and asked his secretary to you know, have him to lunch at, uh, at his office. Well, <laughs> Berlin had no idea, you know, thinking he was constantly being invited to by important people, being a, a very important composer and so on. So he goes and he sits down and uh, Churchill says, so, Mr. Berlin, how do you feel about the latest five-year plan? And Berlin says, uh, search me. <laughs> well, do you think that the production of rubber could be improved by this and such? you know better than I would. <laughs> and the whole lunch was like that. So finally, Berlin leaves and Churchill says to his secretary, who incidentally knew the whole time, and didn't buy, didn't feel he should tell his chief for whatever reason. Says, "I don't see why that man has such an enormous reputation. I know more about these things than he does, and I know nothing at all." <laughs> so these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> uh, exactly, and I, I I just have visions of Irving Berlin. Ah, oh, well, you know, <laughs> who's to say? <laughs> Well, ladies and gents, yeah, check out TumblrHouse.com, the web, the YouTube channel for the show every Monday. Submit some questions. Uh, click like, subscribe to them. Check it out. Uh, we got it on iTunes now for Census Fidelium, the YouTube, the website, and all that. I say this because everybody keeps telling me I forget the intro. I usually go, "Hey, Charles, thanks, take care." 
Yes. Yep. I forgot to I forgot to publicize everybody. So all right. There we go. I'm learning, fellas. Anyway, well, Charles, thanks a lot, man, and uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. And remember these important words as you're lying there in lockdown from Vera Lynn. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, all your friends and relatives are out there just beyond lockdown. <laughs> and you'll see them again. <laughs> Take care, Charles. God bless. Bye-bye.